the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, IBEC, the employers group, called for a pause on further increases in the national minimum wage and other labour policy measures that it says would add €4 billion in costs to Irish businesses. This at a time when it says many SMEs are struggling to make ends meet. In response, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions described the call as short-term and nasty. IBEC Chief Executive Danny McCoy and ICTU General Secretary Owen Reedy joined me in studio to debate the issue. In the second half of the show, Emmett Malone of the Irish Times will join me to give me an update on the public sector pay talks, which are currently stalled without agreement. But I'll begin with IBEC's letter on Monday to Taoiseach Leo Varadkar for various labour policy measures to be paused, with the timelines reviewed to help smooth out the introduction of measures that it says will cost businesses €4 billion Euros to implement. I began by asking Danny McCoy to explain why it had called for further increases in the minimum wage to be paused. Yeah, so it's not that we're trying to reverse any of these issues because um, the trajectory for the minimum wage is agreed upon. What wasn't agreed upon was the time and the speed at which this would be happening or also the other costs that will be happening simultaneously. And so as we turn the start of the year, small business in particular are finding it tough to take the accumulated impact of these government-imposed costs. And so our pause... And that's what we're asking about. It's not a reversal of what's been agreed already or the implementation of this first tranche of the minimum wage. But there's two more tranches to come to get to 60% of this median uh, wage in the economy. And if those tranches come in, they'll be of equal size steps. So we could see the minimum wage go up by nearly 30-35% in a three-year period. To get to the living wage? No, to get to 60% of the median wage. So... I, living wages are just a rechristened minimum wage. Like, you can fancy up a name. It's still the minimum wage. There's no subtlety in the minimum wage. You can rename it. It's not a living wage. A living wage had a, a notion of trying to find the characteristics of the worker and compensate them for their actual living costs. That hasn't happened. This is just a rechristening of a minimum wage. So there's no virtue in this thing by renaming it, but people have done so. Uh, but it's just a minimum wage, and the minimum wage will have gone up by over 30% in a very short period of time, and productivity won't have gone up by 30%, and inflation over the next three years won't be hitting the additional 20% plus rate rises. Mm. Now, it's not just uh, the minimum wage, living wage, call it what you want. There are other measures that are being proposed by the government as well on the PRSI side in terms of statutory sick leave, uh, pension auto-enrolment, although... Pension auto enrolment ain't going to happen this year, that's for sure. Uh, and big question mark over, over when it will be introduced, because as, as you well know, it's been delayed now a, a number of times um, and, and some other bits and bobs as well in terms of leave entitlements. So every, every one of those individually has merit and, th- and we believe they should be brought in. What we're talking about this week into this new year is the fact that they're all coming together cumulatively and being layered on to businesses with tight margins who can't take this dramatic step up in their costs. So that's what we're talking about, a pause. So there's a regulatory impact assessment done of these costs and a commitment from the government that it won't do this again, that it doesn't land this double-digit cost increase. Because again, this is against the backdrop of where businesses, just like households, are dealing with more elevated costs in terms of energy, um, costs right across the economy. The labour market itself is tight to get workers on the on the normal wage, never mind this impact of the social wage on these businesses as well. So we, we're calling for a competitiveness charter that there will be low single-digit costs at most in any given year imposed upon businesses. So in effect, it's around taking a pause and seeing how to bring these things in over time. A pause for how long? Till we agree at social partnership level with the government as to how, you know, how, how long it takes. It may be that the minimum wage doesn't go to 60% inside three years, goes inside five years. Because crucially, what you want to have is people have a job. And minimum wage workers tend to be in, in, high, wa- in high wage bill type of businesses that have low margins. And so very heavily, we'll see that the imposition may be on the business, the business roll over, but the incidents, who will actually bear the cost of this, will be minimum wage workers if there's less employment opportunities. 
These measures have been in the pipeline. I mean, these aren't new measures. They've been talked about and they've been in the pipeline for quite some time. So why is it only now that IBEC has said, oh, hold on, we have to we have to pause and we need to have a consultation, we need to go back to a social partnership framework and relook at this? No, so, so none of these measures are a surprise to us because we've been engaged in these negotiations. The subtlety, what we said this week, is the fact that they've been uncoordinated and cumulated to be brought in the same point in time. And on the record, because the good news is we have a lobbying register, we've over 70 lobbying registered items on this particular topic asking the government to do the regulatory assessment and not to overlay all these costs at once. This was, this was foretold, the impact of this. What has the government said to you in response to your letter? Well, I think their government is seeing with its own eyes that businesses are beginning to struggle quite dramatically and are getting it straight from the horse's mouth in terms of the businesses. I'm sure there will be a reaction to this. Of course, government supported uh, businesses during COVID, didn't it? With indeed. And by, by Collins. They did, indeed. That's what I said in terms of where did the government get the money from? the money from the corporate sector in terms of corporate taxation. So businesses actually financed... Well, workers as well. I mean, it comes no, they didn't, um, Kieran. Actually, they didn't. So that's that's factually untrue. Well, no, because on, we've seen tax second, cuts right throughout COVID. Yeah. We also see the supplement into the households, into the workers. That's just not correct. There isn't a pot called corporate tax that the government puts its hand into and says we'll take, yes, the, co- the, and says we'll take the COVID supports out of that. It has one big pot. No, Kieran, it's the net effect. You just said that the workers financed the pandemic. They didn't. I didn't say they financed the pandemic. I said their income taxes, uh, which financed the exchequer. But the net effect, business contributed way more during those pandemic years to finance the state than the Irish households did. Irish households haven't had a tax increase during that time in net terms. We've seen governments in a consistent amount of budgets tax cut. The fact that they may pay more taxes because their wages have gone up or their social welfare payments... The truth of the matter is corporate tax revenue financed the pandemic years in Ireland. Yeah, I think uh, post 2008, I think you'll, you'll find that uh, everybody was uh, hit in terms of uh, taxation. Um, You've gone back a bit longer uh, there. Well, now. yeah, yeah, OK, fair enough. But uh, nonetheless, um, Owen Reedy, you're General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. And when these proposals by IBEC were put to you, you described them as short-termist and quite nasty. What's your issue with them? I think it's a really bad look from IBEC. It might work well with parts of the base, but I think wider society to be blaming the lowest paid in our economy for challenges in our economy going forward is a cheap one. Um, I mean, there are a whole range of costs that go into uh, for for businesses. IBEC are exclusively talking about labour costs here. Um, And we're talking about workers, many workers uh, in the economy are still struggling with the cost of living crisis. And we know those that earn the least uh, spend their money in the economy. So I, I think it's a it's a bad look. It's a mistake from IBEC. Danny talks about a double-digit increase in the minimum wage. He forgets to mention in 2021, 2022, the increases were way behind inflation. It's just catching up now. The government, and I'm not here to talk on behalf of the government, that's for sure, but they signposted this a number of years ago when the current Taoiseach was tarnished you, uh, the ambition to get to a living wage We said they should do it quicker, faster. We thought the minimum wage should have gone up by two euros this year and two euros next year because work has to pay. And for too many people in our economy, it doesn't pay. You'd think listening to Danny that there was not one, that there was only one side of the labour market. I mean, people are the successful part of businesses as well as the business owners. And that includes workers. They've made a contribution you would swear it was all coming from the corporate mm. boardroom. Uh, that's only part of the story. Sure. There's another part of the story. But doesn't he have a point when he says this is a lot of increases that are going to be imposed on companies, um, you know, more or less uh, at the same time. It's going to be an extra four billion by IBEX estimation in costs that Irish businesses are going to have to bear at a time when a lot of businesses are struggling to make ends meet, particularly in the services sector where a lot of low-paid workers work in cafes, restaurants, pubs, um, some hotels or guest houses, etc. So isn't it fair to say that uh, this burden of cost could actually tip somebody's companies over the edge and jobs could be lost? Well, no, I don't think he has, a, he has a point. I think he's wrong. Uh, there's 2.6 million at work. We've never had as many people in Ireland at work today we're pretty much at full employment. It's a tight labour market. That's a good thing. So something positive must be happening here. We're talking about uh, two things. Danny mentioned in a statement, PRSI increases and sick leave. 0.1%. That's what we're talking about. Workers are paying it too. 
Workers in Ireland today pay about 99% when it comes to taxes on labour compared to their wealthy European country counterparts. The business sector pay less than 50% of what uh, wealthy European countries pay when it comes to employers' tax on labour, PSI. We're talking about uh, a sector that has been well protected during the pandemic, as were workers. You know, we saw IBEC and ICTU working together to make sure we got the PUP and the EWSS. We actually saw how poor our social welfare regime was, even though the workers pay pay-related uh, social insurance. Only now are we talking about them getting pay-related unemployment benefit. So there are workers in the Irish economy saying, we pay European taxes, but we don't get European services. Is everybody paying their fair share? And when we look at what employers pay, we would argue they don't pay their fair share. Um, In the last budget, the government provided a quarter of a billion euros for the business sector to manage this. We're talking about five days statutory sick pay. I bet cost that. They add that on per every worker. Most people won't take that. I mean, you only take that if you're sick. It has to be. It has to be authorised. And if it's not, people will be disciplined. So, talking about these costs as if they are traumatic and uncoordinated is wrong. They are modest increases to bring us into line with Europe. But the real thing, Kieran, if Danny's members, if more of them engaged with my colleagues in the trade union movement, we'd be able to address these issues at sectoral level through productivity discussions. But we still have a problem in Ireland, unlike the rest of Europe, where. Union organisation and collective bargaining in the private sector is in the gift of the employer. That has to change. What about that point on collective bargaining? Yeah, I might just go back one step with with Owen because of the kind of historical reaction of the trade union movements. It was a letter to the government talking about the government going forward, not taking back from the workers that suddenly we get this emotive language of nasty and disgraceful and so on. Like that, you know, if that's a punch and duty show you want to play, fair enough. But actually, this was addressing the government about the reality of businesses in Ireland right now who are struggling with these cost increases. Um, So it wasn't directed at the minimum wage workers. It's not calling for a stop to it. It's quoting about how do we put these things in place in a way that actually keeps sustainability in the economy. And if it is around productivity, well then... Let's have that conversation of trying to match the wages with productivity. Own cites these examples of uh, percentages on the European, depending on your base. 4% is what Irish workers pay for PRSI. The average Irish worker pays way lower amounts in taxation than the European equivalent because we don't have a European social model. We're beginning to make the steps towards that now. But what we're seeing is it's been imposed upon businesses to, to pay for that, whereas households... Um, are basically being left out of this equation. A couple of things, Danny. You say it's not aimed at um, this is not aimed at minimum wage workers, but it will impact minimum wage workers because you're calling for a pause on the increases that are planned over the next couple of years. And I suppose if you're a minimum wage worker, um, that gives you some ability to plan your life, uh, etc. Over the next couple of years. One of the things about minimum wage workers is that there's an assumption that the primary earner in the household is a minimum wage worker and that all minimum wage we talked about. The reality is that most minimum wage uh, recipients live in households that are in the upper income uh, groups in our society because they tend to be offspring uh, of households who are actually engaged in the labour market, doing part-time jobs and so on, going through education. If you really want to target the primary household winner and the poor, and we do have poor people in our society, then more directed Uh, interventions would be appropriate. And the last budget, and so a lot of our beef is actually not at the minimum wage worker, it's about ensuring the sustainability about the government. We've seen that Irish households have been receiving tax cuts right throughout, that when you take out that corporate tax revenue, whatever excess you want to put on it, the reality is that we are running deficits, which means households aren't even paying for the state as it is at the moment. And the first thing the government did with a billion euros in the budget was to give every Irish household €450 of an energy credit, which adds up to a billion when you have over two million of us uh, households. And then they come to their ceiling of we haven't any more. And beyond that, there's a billion for the health service that's currently not been allocated. And we've got embargoes, which actually the trade union should be talking about, not trying to get into a punch and duty show about this. And also the billion euros that employers have paid 
for the National Training Fund, which is now at a billion and a half, heading to two billion surplus, which can't be released. So why does the government keep taxing businesses at a time when the costs are going up? This is what the trade union should be talking about, rather than getting into this emotive, nasty, yeah. disgraceful... Well, uh, just on the tax cuts a uh, bit, because you, you make it sound as if the government has slashed taxes for, uh, for, for people, for workers, which isn't really the case. They've reduced the burden. They've tweaked the USC, fair enough, and that is a, a cut, but they've kind of reduced the burden in terms of um, tax credits and when you hit the top rate and, and so forth. So, yeah, sure, people uh, will have more money in their pay packets, but they're not really cutting taxes uh, as such, okay? And the other thing is, um, you say, let's pause it for now, this isn't the right time to introduce... No, no not just about the minimum wage, talking about the, the lever... For the whole package of measures, you're, of saying, for, yeah. you're saying, let's pause it, this isn't the right time. So when will be the right time? But actually, see, this is... <laughs> The letter is in the public domain and has the elements. We've asked to pause till the regulatory impact assessment of these costs have been done. Yeah. So once that's been identified and agreed in the context of the full impact to put these in place. So it's not to say that we're, we're asking to pause the minimum wage next January and the January after that. But maybe we will come to a conclusion that for the sustainability of our society that we actually hit the 60% target over a longer time period. So it's not to reverse anything, but it could slow down. And this is in the context of productivity, not going to match those levels of step up, nor inflation going to be. So in terms of this consultation process, then, what would IBEC be saying in terms of the timing of these moves? When would be a good time for all of these to be introduced? That's what the regulatory impact assessments look at. So let's look at the evidence. Let's see what's well, presumably been IBEC, I mean, we presumably have, four, have a view on it. We have. We know there's four billion euros of wage costs, which won't be equally distributed across the economy because large businesses will be able to absorb this or they're well away from some of those costs. And also they provide these sick pay services and so on as well. These are for small businesses that none of those things in place. So the burden is going to be very high and can be as high as 20 to 25 percent for businesses with low so margins. So when, when would be a good time for these companies to bear that burden? Well, first of all, the government can... I've, I've identified a couple of things here. One is the inc- the 1% of the PRSI that's not actually been utilised for the thing that it was. Why do we keep taking that if we're not going to utilise it? And also we put £250 million, which may sound a lot of money, but it isn't. £250 million has been set aside by the government to deal with these extra costs. Uh, that's about a couple of thousand euros per business. Uh, some businesses which are big won't need that kind of money, but there's no targeting of any of these measures. And so that's what we're asking for, that we actually have an assessment to see how best to put these things and how to achieve these agreed targets. Uh, but again, the kind of ranting stuff this week has just been nonsense, like own coming but out nasty. you still, haven't, nasty answered, you still haven't answered stuff. the question as to when, you know, what the appropriate time frame would be to introduce uh, these measures, which you say will add up to $4 billion. So wh- when would be a good time frame? If it's not the next couple of years, is it four years, five years? Could be that time frame, but like, that's, to, that's to be discussed because we haven't had any discussion on the implementation phasing of this. That's all we've asked for this week. I mean, look, there's no ranting and there's no emotional language. We're trying to call it as we see it. We think targeting a cohort in our society, in our economy, who are on the lowest paid is, is, is a bad look and it's the wrong way to go. Of course, there are cost challenges. We're seeing businesses in the hospitality sector closing, Cork announced recently and places like that. But let's remember, that's one of the very industries that refuses to engage in the joint labour committee process, unlike their colleagues in, say, contract cleaning and security who do. And we've argued that forums like that where you can engage you know you can try and take things like wages out of competition you can try and look at things like productivity and you can try and put things on a level uh, keel that's kind of the way to go but uh, those bodies and the restaurants association and the Irish Hotel Federation they you know they hold their nose and say we're not going to we're not going to discuss these things with the other side of the labour market. So it's not emotional. It's about saying there are two there are two parts to the labour market. There are the employers and there are workers, and we need to make sure there's balance and people are treated fairly. And I think you know, I think if IBEC were coming out this week and saying there are challenges around the cost of doing business, and labour costs is one element, but there are many others. They're not. They're focusing on labour costs pretty much exclusively. That might work very well with part of the base. But I just don't think it's the right message across the board. We are playing catch up with Europe in many instances with some of these things. This this concept of a social wage that we talk about, which we don't really have here. Um, and Leo Varadkar, when he was tarnished yet, signposted this a, num- a number of years ago. So uh, Danny mentioned it should be targeted. I agree with him. That quarter of a billion 
money there shouldn't go to the companies that don't need it, but give it to those that do need it. But he's saying these costs are going to be about four billion. Well, there's about an eighth of support there for businesses who need it. That's not a bad place to start. Uh, And I would imagine uh, that IBEC would probably be able to uh, shake the government down for some more support and funding when it comes to that. So I really think targeting those who are on the minimum wage, who are at best this year going to keep up with inflation, is just the wrong way to go. What about IBEC's call for a full impact assessment of these increased labour costs? We are hearing calls practically every day now from people in the services sector uh, telling us how they're struggling to make ends meet. And they're giving us practical examples of how that's uh, how that's working. So is it not a fair enough call by IBEC to say, let's have a pause, let's step back for a moment, let's do a, an impact assessment. And then when we've done that comprehensively, engaging with all the parties, I presume, uh, we can we can move forward in, in terms of a timeline for introducing these measures. So an impact assessment of what? Of the minimum wage going up 12% last this month, when before that, over the previous four years, it was he's about... Looking forward to, no, but, I, I think he's looking forward uh, to the increase that are coming but, down the road. But, but, but I mean, minimum wage has been given, but, oh, and that's but, done. But, and okay, that's your but, point, we're only asking that we assess what's going to happen in the future. Okay, and you're, well, well, we're talking about, you're saying what has happened has cost us four billion. You're, and you're saying it's very challenging. What's happened? So we've had the minimum wage, we've had 0.1% on PRSI, and this year we have five days statutory sick leave. That's all we have. As you said yourself, auto-enrolment is there. The details of it have to be worked out, and whether it happens in 2024 is highly debatable. That's what we're talking about. That's fairly modest stuff now. I do believe there are certain sectors of the economy that are struggling more, and they can get support from the government. But... But... Stopping progress when it comes to workers' rights and labour rates is not the way to go. There are other ways to support business. And I do think some of those businesses that are struggling are from the very same industries that will not engage with trade unions and collective bargaining to share common problems. Because can I tell you, competitiveness and productivity are very much important issues for the trade union movement and workers. They're not just, you know, something that uh, Danny's interested in. We're interested too, but there's two sides of the labour market and they have to have a fair crack of the whip here. Danny, in terms of the extra four billion in costs, can you break it down for us um, sort of section by section? So the the increases in the minimum wage, for example, of the four billion, what, what will they account for? So that, that would be um, a substantial part of it, um, be about a billion, billion and a half, I think, in the, in the estimate of it. Auto-enrolment? Auto-enrolment would be much more substantial because as that escalates up, it becomes much more significant. Um, it'll be done in steps, so in time, that will be over $2 billion. Over $2 billion. Okay. Now, look, auto-enrolment isn't likely to happen this year, is it? And be, yeah, but that's the point. The our, question mark over, over when it will be implemented. Our, our assessment is not about the... Uh, $4 billion is about the going forward. All we've said this week is about going forward. It's not about where we've been. Um, and so the minimum wage is in place. The twelve percent is sure, in place. I'm, but I'm just making the but point the that auto enrollment. Let's face it; it's not going to happen this year. So that cost isn't actually going to come through this year for for yeah. Your but business. but if you're a business and you have to make an assessment of going forward on your business, and you know yeah. that these costs are coming, if there's no pause in them, then uh, as a corporate responsibility, you have to make provision for this. You have to make provision for the possibility that your staff would go sick. Uh, you have to make the provision that leave will be required and r- right to request remote working, which will have a consequence. Not just the individual might want to go out, but you have to backfill it. These are the costs we're talking about. And so the, the substantial costs coming at businesses have to make business decisions. It's, it's not just from the worker's side to say, oh, just give us the money. The businesses actually have to work out the full cost implications of their sustainability of their business. And these have been flagged to them as they're coming. And so for a business to be sustainable and to be act as a going concern with all their other creditors in the restaurant business or other suppliers and so on, if they believe that these costs will actually mean that their margins are eroded completely, they're in danger of, of trading irresponsibly. So knowing what's coming down the line is that these are, these are the aggregate of the costs that we've estimated from what's proposed. That, that is not what's actually in place. But that's part of the assessment. Like, we haven't asked for anything here to be reversed. We've asked for the very logical, yeah. do an assessment. And just to be clear, I mean, the government has put in place a, a scheme for energy supports uh, for businesses who were impacted by uh, the energy costs, because uh, Owen was talking about uh, the non-labour costs that are coming through in business. And uh, the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, has made it very clear that they're going to do something on the debt warehousing, um, which a lot of small and medium-sized companies... Mm-hmm. 
uh, availed of during COVID. Sure. Um, and he's kind of indicated that nobody's going to be put out of business um, for, for that. The, you know, the, the revenue will work out an arrangement over a period of years for that money to be repaid. I mean, these, you know, the government is uh, is working for businesses as well, isn't it? It absolutely is. Um, the debt warehousing is actually a separate issue. If you even think about it in the context of a household, that's a debt you have that you might actually have to start repaying. That's an additional cost that's going to be unique to the circumstance of whether you have a debt or not. What we're talking about in terms of the costs here are the flow costs going forward, which regardless of whether you have debt or no debt, they're, they're separate issues. I know they're being conflated at the moment, there may be some of the same businesses involved in experiencing these rise up in costs that arose in their margins who happen to simultaneously have a debt as well. It's essentially, the, the debt warehousing is... But it's not every business has a debt. Of course. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the fair taxation, uh, essentially, isn't it? Unpack that bit for me. What do you mean by... The debt warehousing is essentially, it's, it's tax that was owed by the businesses during COVID. Yes. It's been parked. Yes. Um, and it has to be, it ultimately has to be repaid. And, that's, and, and the a, government says it's going to ease the terms. Exactly. That's a, prin- the that's a principal position yeah. for the Revenue Commission. And it, so. has, it has also worked in terms of, uh, it's worked hard in terms of insurance reforms to try and reduce the costs for businesses. Absolutely. And that's my point at the start of all this. All of these measures have merit in themselves and have been agreed that this is the way to go. Our issue is not about the levels or the issues in of themselves, as long as we have a fair conversation of how they're implemented. It's the uncoordinated and cumulative mm-hmm. effect of these arriving at one time are now yeah. stressing out our economy and our business community. I'm just curious why now, Danny? Why, why have the alarm bells suddenly gone off in IBEC on this? Because these measures have been in the pipeline, they've been talked about, they've been discussed, they've been debated for a long, long time. So we, talked about this, we talked about this a few minutes ago. There's, we've got 70 lobbying returns highlighting this issue with the government all the way along. We've been asking this for the last number of years. So you've simply you've gotten nowhere with it and you've decided to go public with it? Public is, we're always, like the lobbying register is the public. This is that the fact that this is Well, sorry, you won't find on the lobbying register, you might find a, a, a note saying that Danny McCoy met Michael McGrath, but you won't find the letter that Danny McCoy sent Michael McGrath or the presentation that Danny McCoy might have made to Michael uh, And precisely, it's why we use that mechanism this week to put it out there and to highlight the concerns that the business community has. So essentially, you've gotten nowhere with, with government on this over the last long period and so Kieran, you, you, you've laid out a really good uh, list of things that we've actually had progress with the government on over the last number of years but in terms of these labour costs but what we're talking about here is the fact that it's been uncoordinated and cumulative at this particular moment in time and that part I think could have been avoided uh, What will ICTU's submission to the government be on what IBEC has put into the public domain? I think we have to pr- proceed as, as planned I mean I said to you at the start would you participate in an impact uh, assessment exercise? We'd participate in an impact assessment exercise on the basis of proper inclusion. And, and let me just explain that. Because the best thing both the government, IBEC and Congress can do this year is transpose this really important directive that we were over at the Oireachtas Committee hearing talking about this morning, which is it's called the Adequate Minimum Wages. It's really about collective bargaining. That directive is placing a legal obligation on all member states, including the Irish member state, to promote the right to exercise collective bargaining, in particular at sectoral level. That's a, that's a sea change for the government. IBEX position is we don't need any legislative change. That's what they said today. I, I don't know how we're going to do that because we've no legislation that promotes the right to exercise collective bargaining. If and when we can get to a place where our unions are engaging uh, with employers at sectoral level where they are not, particularly in those industries that say they're in trouble, I think we can have a proper impact assessment there, both at sectoral level and at central level with government. But we've one arm tied behind our back here. There's a UCD study that shows 44% of workers not in the union in the economy today want one. They want to join. uh, 67% of 16 to 24-year-olds not in the union want one. And what's preventing that is private sector employers having a veto, whether we have 50, 80, 90% density in a particular employment or sector, where they can say today, sorry, we're not going to talk to you. That day has to be over. If we can do all that, we'll be involved in all impact assessments. But when we're excluded from various parts of the labour market where workers want access to collective bargaining, you can't have a proper impact assessment with us as a partner uh, with one arm tied behind our back. That has to change. It has to change this year. I mean, Ryanair was uh, the classic example of an anti-union mm-hmm. company, but eventually uh, 
Yeah. It had to, it Tight had to bend market. after years and years of pressure and the from sky hasn't fallen pilots in. in particular. Yeah. It had to, it had to bend. Yeah. Um, sky hasn't fallen in. The company's still doing very well. Mm. There's a union involved. They have their skirmishes. Um, but but workers have a say. They have access to collective bargaining. If Ryanair can do it, there's huge swathes of the hospitality sector, for example, that can do it. But why can't a, a Ryanair-type model happen at other companies? I know with SMEs, you know, small, really small companies, it's kind of difficult. Well, but well, with, with other, you know, medium-sized companies in Ireland where they don't recognise uh, unions, why can't um, a, a Ryanair-type model where pressure is built over a number of years and eventually the company... Uh, comes to the table and says, okay, we'll negotiate. Is that a failure of the union movement? No, it can happen and it does happen. But but here's the thing, Kieran. We've we've two tools in our in our toolbox. We either use the power of persuasion, we say to the employer, look, seventy percent of your staff are in the union, it's good to talk. And if that doesn't work, we have to resort resort to the persuasion of power, a strike. Now I think in twenty twenty four, in a modern first world economy, surely we can do better. This directive puts an onus on the government to promote collective bargaining. And it's very clear in the directive, collective bargaining is with trade unions. It's not with Mickey Mouse workplace uh, councils that the employer sets up and trains and funds. That's not collective bargaining. I don't know what it is, but it's not collective bargaining. So the state has to do that. And I think it's important that ourselves and IBEC work with the state to ensure that happens. We're not going to turn the world on its head, but I can assure you in those sectors where there are workers who want to be in unions but the employer denies it, I think we'll have higher productivity and we'll have more win-win situations if we have sectoral bargaining in those areas. But the employers have to, you know, in those areas, come into the 21st century. Now, I want to be very clear. Many of Danny's members are very enlightened and engaged with trade unions. That's a good thing. Uh, but there are still quite a number of employers in, in, in Ireland who are hostile to unions. And I want to say one other thing. There are many employments that have really good T's and C's where there's no demand or desire from the workers to join a union. That's fine. We don't want conscripts. There are enough volunteers out there. But we have to remove that institutional impediment where the employer prevents it happening when their workers want it. We need to move into the modern age here like the rest of Europe. Danny, is Ibeck an impediment to collective bargaining? No, it's not. I'm not saying IBEC is, by yeah. the way. I'm not saying IBEC is. Just, just uh, in the context of the week that's been in it, um, given that we, we represent quite a lot of businesses that do good business and so on, the, the kind of name-calling uh, of those businesses wouldn't really encourage those who don't want unions, actually. So I'm not sure there's been a great week for the trade union movement in terms of uh, getting all of business on side. But to go back to the point, is collective bargaining and collectivism more generally is a trend that's been in our global society over the last number of years. We call it stakeholder capitalism now as opposed to just shareholder capitalism. So we know that there's a movement in terms of constitutional um, mandates given in, in the last election to the opposition parties, etc. We, we, however form of collective bargaining, it may have a trade union element to it. So we're not, we're not adverse to that. Uh, it may be more broadly defined than that, but at the moment, those 44% that he mentioned can join a union. Currently, they don't. They can join a union, but they can't mm. get the benefit of what the union gives. The director is very clear. It, it says collective bargaining is between employers and trade unions, not anyone else. That's a legal requirement in the state. That's what we have to do. I think if we can do that, we can make progress together. Sure, that's, On a positive note. Collective bargaining is probably another podcast, but um, uh, just to wind up this conversation, Danny, where, where does it go from here in terms of uh, timelines? Oh, it would be, be interesting to see the government's response to, uh, when to, do that, you expect to response? that request. I, I can't, you know, uh, look into their souls, but what they are seeing out on the streets in terms of small, medium enterprises in Ireland is uh, a very building uh, reaction to the cumulative effect of these costs. So uh, I would expect the government will be responding to it. Owen, it, just in terms of timelines, has, has ICTU uh, lodged its view with the government on, on this or well, do you we, intend to do that? Oh yeah, we've, well, I mean, we've made it very, very clear this week. We have a Labour Employer Economic Forum meeting at the end of February, which ourselves and IBEC will be at. And no doubt we'll have a good, wholesome discussion about these issues and many other issues, which which is the place to do it. I mean, we, we, we support that process. It was discussed in the Rock this Committee today. Of yeah. course, we should, uh, yeah. we should mention that. Okay, Danny McCoy and Owen Reedy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be joined by Emma Malone from the Irish Times to discuss the latest state of play in public sector pay talks. Back in a few moments. How can harnessing the power of AI help drive your business? At EY, we combine leading business expertise 
with cutting-edge technology and capabilities. Working directly with you to plan your strategy, we will accelerate your AI-enabled transformation. To learn more, visit ey.ai forward slash IE. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, public sector pay talks stalled in recent weeks as unions and the government failed to agree on important issues around pay and productivity. Emma Malone of the Irish Times has been reporting on the talks and he joined me in studio to discuss the latest state of play. I began by asking him to outline the main points of difference between the two sides. So the latest state of play is that everyone's uh, waiting for the pay talks to kick off again. It's been an interesting uh, couple of weeks, I think, in the 24 hours or so after the talks broke up uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago at the Workplace Relations Commission. Both sides indicated that they were willing to go back in uh, on foot of an invitation from the WRC. Now, uh, that was slightly at odds, uh, Pascal Dunne, who said that the following day um, after the, the late night out in the the talks that the government side would be happy to, to re-enter straight away. The previous evening, uh, his the senior officials from Deeper had suggested that they wanted some time to go away and um, consider the developments in the talks at that stage, which had involved two two offers from uh, from the government side and a counter offer from uh, from the union side. So, just through, please, what offers are on the table? Are yeah, I mean, essentially, essentially, in in really uh, basic terms, the government has offered eight and a half percent over two and a half years, and and the unions have sought twelve and a half percent. Within that, there's a significant enough um, difference in the structuring of the deal. So, I mean, you have uh, the the government. Deal is, offer is is sort of slightly backloaded with more of the money coming towards the end of the two and a half years, and uh, and the union demand um, involves six percent of that twelve and a half percent being paid over the course of this year. You know they are the key differences. So we're talking about a difference of four percent, but we're also talking about more of the money being upfront if the unions get their way. And interesting that Pascal Dunne, who has been out saying that for every extra one percent given in pay to yeah. the public sector, it costs the state two hundred and fifty million euro. So six percent, a six percent pay increase this year adds one point two five billion to the state's uh, bills, essentially. Yeah, that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've sought, uh, but have not obtained uh, the breakdown from deeper in terms of how much of that might be recouped in taxes. So whether that's a net or a gross figure, but um, it sounds like a big figure. So it must be, it must be gross rather than net. You would imagine so, but it's we're we're over a week in counting on uh, deeper being able to, to confirm that. So. Yeah, uh, either way, they're big numbers. Uh, there's no doubt about the fact that um, these are these are major commitments for the government to make. Um, the number of staff in the public sector is increasing. Um, so those figures will, you know, continue to rise. And uh, and Pascal Dunhu's, has, Dunhu has been fairly clear, and it's an understandable position, that um, this is all very well while the economy is going very well, while corporate taxes, uh, rev, tax revenues are very high. But it would very quickly become a very substantial problem if we were to see a downturn on anything like the scale that we saw 15 years ago. Uh, so it's it, it, it it's a question of being cautious and prudent. But at the same time, he keeps making the point, recognising the fact that the cost of living has increased very significantly for public sector workers as it has for everybody else. There are still some quite, you know, mo- modestly paid uh, public sector workers and, and 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 the structure of this deal also takes some account for that with the government offer um, in, involving a number of kind of minimum cash uh, amounts to those people rather than uh, strictly sticking to the uh, percentages and the minister put the figure for the lowest paid workers at, at around 12%. So so it's a balancing act from his point of view but but mm. the, the on the other hand the unions point to uh, what they see as a shortfall in the last pay agreement, uh, which was negotiated at a time when it wasn't entirely clear the scale of the uh, uh, inflation rate for last year. So they feel there's some ground to be made up here before we start looking forward. Yeah. I got a sense from your coverage late last year that the unions were really up for a fight on this and, you know, there was uh, talk of industrial action and so forth. But have they stepped back from that a little bit? Has that, has that kind of language calmed down? I think that they, yeah, I, I think they have sort of, they haven't mobilised on it in the way that, that they were, that, that they were suggesting they might. I, I, you know, we had a lot of talk in December about a, a crucial meeting of the public sector, public services committee of ICTU, 
which took place last week and how that was being really organised to finalise the wording on ballots, but that unions, individual unions might move quite swiftly from that point to actually balloting on industrial action. Um, the, the talk on more than one occasion from Kevin Callanan, who chairs that committee, was that, you know, uh, public sector workers would be balloting on something come January, either a pay deal or industrial action. But that hasn't happened. And that hasn't happened so far. And I and I think that could be a measure of the extent to which some progress was made. There were some there was some posturing, I think it's fair to say, on the last night of the, the talks where the union side said they were hugely disappointed uh, with the initial government pay offer, which is not the one that we've just been talking about, but uh, but the, the, the closing one of the evening, which was slightly improved. But I think there's a sense that there's a deal there to be done. And I, I certainly that's there on the union side, uh, talking to other, you know, member unions of that public service committee, not necessarily the, the four people who are representing them in the room. But there's a feeling that the gap between 8.5% and 12.5% and some restructuring within that is bridgeable uh, without having to uh, without having to kind of mobilise, mm. you know, union members up and down the country to embark on a process that would take quite a while to get going. I mean, the balloting process would take a number of weeks, would probably from last week, I think that stage, I, I kind of looking at the, the prospects of it starting, the late February would be the earliest you could imagine that industrial action um, would start. So I think what we're seeing here is a situation where the neither side sees the whole process as so broken that that it's over. And there is an expectation on the union side that the Workplace Relations Commission will go to both sides over the coming days before the end of this week and ask for their assessment of where they stand and and, and what people are willing to do from here. Pay is obviously a key element of these talks, yeah, particularly for, sure. for the unions. But there are non-pay issues at play here as well. Just take us through the key ones. Well, obviously reform is always a significant issue for the government. And and if you look at, you know, if you look at what's happening been happening in the, in the HSE for instance over the over the past uh, year, there's been a good deal of talk about more flexibility there to use facilities out of normal hours and you know in, in many cases now we, we have a new we, there's a new deal in the sector with uh, on the table for doctors um, for consultants to try and achieve more flexibility but in a significant number of cases the sort of treatments that the HSE aspires to introducing out of hours out of normal working hours are not possible un- unless a good many other kind of groups of workers are also working flexibly. And, and so that would be the sort of thing that, uh, that the government side wants to achieve in this. There are also a number of issues in terms of, particularly in local governments, where large numbers of staff were lost through attrition in the wake of the crash during a, 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 quite a lengthy uh, recruitment freeze. And unions there believe that a good many of their members taking on responsibilities that they're not being entirely compensated for and that their jobs have evolved due to the growing use of very, you know, and sometimes quite basic issues like, you know, the evolution of of computers and and software packages. Uh, And they want those addressed. But I think what we'll see is that the government will also look for those to come under the scope of this sort of reform issue. So so there's, there's, there's there's some back and forth to be done. And arising out of that, in part, is a kind of issue for local bargaining to emerge. And th- what we saw at the very start before the talks really formally got underway, although there were kind of, there were informal meetings going on for a good many months last year, long before the, the, the two sides met at the end of November formally, um, face-to-face, across the table in the WRC. They, 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 they'd been meeting on and off since early summer. And one of the key elements there had been to establish a mechanism for for local bargaining. And the union side felt that under the old FEMPI reg- uh, legislation, the legislation the government brought in in 2009 to, um, you know, a- address the sudden and dramatic shortfall cut in wages, the public finances, to cut away, which, which absolutely, that was a, a key element of it, that deeper had been given a, an effective veto on any uh, on any sort of local deals that were done. So what we had were instances, even last year, where say the retained firefighters went went out on strike, and and there seemed to be a willingness on both sides to address that. But repeatedly, what you had was the management side and the local go- local government, uh, the local authorities, saying ultimately this isn't down to us. There's nothing we can do without the the say so of, of deeper. And this is a recurring theme in the public sector where the unions feel that they have. Sometimes exceptional claims where they feel there's a particularly kind of 
exceptional set of circumstances relating to sometimes quite small groups of workers, but in other cases, large swathes as across the the, the admin uh, grades of the uh, local authorities. And and they wanted that removed. Pascal Dunhu has said, well, look, you know, somebody's got to have the, the, the veto here. Ultimately, before Deeper existed, the Department of Finance effectively had one because any of these groups, any of these employers, they did a deal. They still had to go back to the Department of Finance and look for the money. But, you know, if you want this, we will repeal that legislation. And he gave a commitment to do that. So that he is, he's read a lot into that. It's an odd one in one way, because on the one hand, he's saying that it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. On the other hand, he, he, sees, he, he lists it as a, a major concession to the unions. But that local bargaining element is significant. And both sides have provided in their respective kind of uh, offers here for uh, 3% of wages to be dedicated to that local bargaining element. The government side envisages just 1% in the current deal with 2% carried over into the next public sector pay deal. The unions unsurprisingly want it uh, a little before that. Yeah, there's huge debate going on about artificial intelligence and what impact that's going to have on the workplace and on roles uh, within work going forward. Is that forming any part of the debate in these pay talks? Not that I'm aware of. I have to say it's not something that's come up in my conversations with either side. Mm. Um, and I've spoken quite extensively to the union side and, and AI hasn't really, really been mentioned. Um, it's an interesting one uh, on the union side. I mean, I was at three, three union conferences last year, nine days of debate. And uh, I think God bless a, co- you. a couple of them, no mention of AI whatsoever. And so we have this kind of, um, we're in this kind of environment where people see the dramatic changes in AI. We've been talking about AI for a long time. Suddenly 2023 was a mm. huge year for it. You know, a lot of a lot of very tangible um, developments there. And, and a lot of people now predicting that 2024 is a year in which a lot more of those developments are going to be felt in the workplace. Um, these have not been really um, mm. uh, featuring as a, as a key kind of element of the talks that I'm aware of. Yeah. So is there a head in the sand approach here or are they just behind the Behind the curve, I am. Um, I, I look. You know, I, I, as people inevitably say in these sort of debates, you know, AI is sort of everywhere at, at a kind of low level. Um, you know, the chatbots that we we engage with when we phone offices and stuff like that. It, there's there, there's a lot of a lot of kind of um, computer systems being used to change the way people work. I suspect it's covered under under that umbrella to some extent. The the, the yeah, as I've already said, the engagement that the, the reform that the, the government side wants and the engagement that the union side wants in terms of the changes of work practice that they've already seen and and that are developing. And perhaps that three percent, it is a more localized issue, I think, in, in terms of how it would apply to different sectors of the public sector, which is obviously hugely diverse. But it's not as far as I can see, been addressed as a specific issue. So is it a case, we've seen, we've had many pay talks over many decades here and you always hear a certain amount of grandstanding and a lot of huffing yeah, and puffing and I, it's I just hear tell that that is the case, Kieran, yes. yes. I know you're, you're sort of new to this <coughs> yeah, beat. Yeah, so it's my first your, time around the block, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I wonder if that's just simply the case here again and inevitably in, you know, a month or two months we'll have a deal struck. I think there's a, that's certainly a possibility. Talking to people from other unions outside of the, the, the you know, I've spoken quite a lot to some of the to some of the negotiators. How many unions are we talking about? Well, there's 19 unions on the Public Services Committee. Okay. Some of those are very, very small. I mean, memberships in hundreds. Uh, quite specialist niche. Uh, obviously, the big ones, uh, you know, like the INTO, SIP2, INMO, uh, Forza, it's their key people are, are make up the, the negotiation team. And it's quite a diverse group. But um, but I think the sense was, certainly that I got across across the board, I, I didn't really get anyone who dissented from this view, that a deal was, was doable. Um, the negotiators have their position to adopt with a view to going back into negotiations and they're a slightly harder line. But, I mean, I think, again, the sense is that the gap here is not enormous and that it, that it, that it's doable. And my sense coming out of those talks at that stage was that they would be back in the following week and that we could have a deal within a matter of days. That hasn't happened. Um, Pascal Dunhu went, as I say, from the next day from saying that the government side would be happy to go back in uh, as soon as they were invited to a week later um, in a radio interview saying that um, that the government would be happy to engage again if the opportunity arose. And um, and so there seems to be a kind of, you know, a slightly more opaque uh, take on, 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 on where this goes uh, on the government side at the moment. And it's not entirely clear 
what their intentions are. I think the unions have been frustrated by that. A lot of their national executives met last week. There seems to have been, you know, the decision not to proceed to balloting at that stage. I'm not quite sure how long that would, that, that they could sustain that position if there isn't some, some sort of obvious progress or the prospect of it. Um, as you say, they, they took a hard line before Christmas and that's going to start kind of biting them a bit, you know, if uh, if there isn't really any any clear kind mm. of path forward. So I think I think a, uh, things will become a bit clearer over the coming days. And I just wonder, and we'll finish on this point, if the sure. union's position maybe is, is in any way influenced by the early weeks of this new year, because we're hearing a lot about the services sector being under huge pressure, cafes, restaurants having to close, they simply can't make ends meet, pubs and so forth. Where, uh, I think there's a delegation going into Simon Coveney to talk about tourism and rising costs and all the issues that they, they face. And, you know, you hear about the childcare sector and so forth. So many sectors in this economy at the minute are really finding it difficult to make ends meet because of inflation and because of embedded costs and so sure. forth. So do you think that has softened the cough slightly of the unions? I'm not sure. Again, that hasn't that hasn't come up. You know, those conferences, you get people, particularly on the basis of the last pay deal and uh, the extension that was done to it uh, at a time of very high inflation, you definitely got people, you know, from the floor getting up and and expressing a mixture of anger and frustration about the shortfall in public sector pay that resulted in that deal, like what they regarded as a as a real decline in uh, living standards uh, at a time of high inflation. Now there are other factors to it, and you know people will argue that they they you know a lot of public sector workers did well out of the cuts in in the Crow Park hours, and you know it's a complicated landscape. It's not particularly the last deal. I think this will be more clear cut in terms of the value of the pay uh, that that's offered, but. The recent pay deals have been complicated by elements of restoration of, of what was cut a decade or more ago. I, I think I think the people who run in these talks are concerned that their members are pressing for pay increases. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure that if you have, you know, uh, a low paid worker in, in, in a local authority or a nurse working a lot of hours, whatever, that their, you know, their their chief concern is is the pressures on a cafe operator that on the on the corner of their street. Okay, and the next key date in this? Um, as I say, the union side expect the WRC to come to them by the end of the week, to come to both sides by the end of the week and seek sort of, you know, a, an update on where they see the process going. Both sides had indicated a willingness to go in. That doesn't seem to have happened. The WRC only issued those invitations on the basis that they think they're going to be taken up by both sides and that there's a basis for talking. So something has stalled there over the past week. I think it's on the government side and the government side have not been hugely forthcoming about what their position is so far. But I think by the end of the week, we'll at least know whether we've got a real difficulty here or there's just been a sort of a bit of a standoff before both sides go in and I think quite possibly do a deal over the you know, the course of next week. Okay, Emma Malone, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Danny McCoy, Owen Reedy and Emma Malone for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY, building a better working world.